Father, I thank you that there is power in your word. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you say, and all these things will be added to you. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And yet, Father, we have worshipped at the feet of so many other things that just brew more and more and more worry and anxiety because the gods we serve aren't good gods at the end of the day. I pray that you would show us in our hearts, individually and corporately, where it is we have a worship sickness, that we're worshiping other things more than you. Would you touch us in that place, however painful it is, so that we can receive deeper healing than we ever imagined? We thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, not just to save us from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. I pray you would extend the scepter of your saving power this morning. And I ask this in Christ's name, amen. So, no surprise what I'm preaching on. <laughs> worry, anxiety. Do you ever worry? Are you ever filled with anxiety? I would venture to say that if I said, hey, everyone, there is a pad of paper underneath your seat with a pencil, and as long as you need to write out the things that you have worried about or you are worrying about or maybe so full of worry you know you're going to worry about. And I'm guessing we could spend the rest of this worship time doing that, worshiping our worries, which was, is kind of the problem in the first place, isn't it? I was listening to Alistair Bag on this text, and he, he told the story of, of a very funny Broadway play from years ago called Search. There was 12 parts in it, all played by one woman. You've probably heard of her, Lily Tomlin. One of those parts is Worrywart. And Worrywart comes out on the stage, and she says, I worry since peanut oil is made from peanuts, and olive oil comes from olives, where does baby oil come from? <laughs> and she goes on to list a litany of other worries, and then she gets a little bit more serious, and she says, and I worry about my place in the cosmic scheme of things, and then I worry if there even, even is a cosmic scheme of things. I would say Lily Tomlin's worry wart is illustrative of how we can worry about small, silly things, but honestly, also about real, big, significant things. There's not a person here that is not at some point touched by worry. I would venture to say some are paralyzed by worry, obsessed with worry, but all of us at some times are afflicted by worry. And as I was sharing with a number of people this week, I feel like, and this is where I'm trying to thread the needle, that we've moved from a time and a place where there was no, no way there could worry and anxiety could ever have physiological or biological reasons to a place where we categorize all worrying and all anxiety as surely being, you know, physiological, biological. 
And if someone were to say to you, if you're racked with anxiety, you know, the, the Bible might have something to say about this. We very easily say, oh, 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 oh. That's so simplistic. I've tried that. I, I went to church. I prayed a prayer. I memorized a verse. You don't know the nature of my problems. I feel like Christians have gone there very quickly in response to another overreaction. I am not a medical doctor, and I don't play one on TV. But as they say, um, I am a physician of the soul. That is, I'm a pastor, I'm a shepherd, and I preach the great physician of the souls, Jesus. And Jesus likes to bump into things that we've become comfortable with, but aren't quite as scriptural as we like to think, even if they seem compassionate, because he's the ultimate picture of compassion. And Jesus will not give us carte block diplomatic immunity against sin, against worry, because worry can be a sin, right? Just as much as lust and hate and greed and all the rest. In our text, we are going to see some three times Jesus commands us, do not be anxious. Six times the word anxiety itself appears. Now, the thing that's so, that's so bad about worry is this. Well, inwardly, worry is very crippling, isn't it? Anyone ever said, you know, I'm going through such a time of anxiety and worry, it is so freeing and so restful. Oh, come join me in this worry trip. Nobody ever said that. So it, 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 it's, 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 it's hurtful to us, right? But worse than that, it's belittling to God, isn't it? Because it says, God, you really don't love me, even though you, you gave me your son. And you really aren't going to take care of me, even though you've promised as much. So, I realize that today's message, of which I'm already off script, but I'm, I'm just trusting the Lord to put out there what he's given me in my study. I realize, I realize, this message has the potential to be extremely jarring for some people. But if you'll allow it, I think it has the capacity to be extremely liberating at the same time. My, my aim here, my goal, Jesus' goal from this text, is not to have people who walk in worry be laden with more guilt. Rather, to help you find freedom. So I want to read God's word, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to the end of the chapter, and then dive in. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's huge right there. That's huge. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And then a third illustration. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. 
what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that neither sow nor reap nor gather into the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Here's the money verse. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I want to preach you this morning on this big idea, fight anxiety and fuel faith by treasuring God. You fight anxiety and you fuel faith by treasuring God. We're going to walk the text. We're going to see a choice Jesus calls us to make, you to make today, this morning, right now. The consequences of the choice you make either for good or bad, he's a realist, And then coming back to make that choice, we must make even more clear, all right? So first of all, a choice. What is so cool, this is verses 19 through 24, Jesus doesn't say, hey, do you battle worry? Here's what I want you to do. Suck it up, buttercup. Just don't worry. That would help, right? Okay, thank you. I won't worry anymore, even though I'm wrecked by worry. No, no, Jesus wants to get underneath your hood. He wants to get into your heart. And he's going to call us to make three decision points that will then affect emotion and outward. Three decisions he calls us to make. Three choices, if you will. He calls us to make three choices. I just read them. Let's hit them real quick again. First, he calls you to make a choice in terms of treasure. Those familiar words about laying up treasure in heaven, right, instead of laying up treasure on earth. Is Jesus against enjoying stuff and having stuff, yes or no? No, not at all. What Jesus is against is the godless accumulation of stuff for the purpose of refining our ultimate security and satisfaction in that stuff. What's the problem with doing that? Well, just on a human level, does stuff really get it done? No, it doesn't. Read Ecclesiastes. Chapter two, few of us can say these words. He says, Solomon says, whatever I desired, I gave myself to. Whatever my eyes looked at, I enjoyed. And he goes on to say, but all of it was like breath, empty, futile, vanity in the wind. It didn't get the job done. You ever watch a documentary on lottery winners? What's typically the outcome of a lottery winner? Yeah, just life goes down, there's so much sorrow, and they say, I wish I'd never won. Now, we always think, not me. 
I guarantee you when I bought that $2 billion lottery card on a hunting trip last year, I haven't done that in years, I thought, I won't be the guy. If I win it, I probably would be. I was sharing with my family at the dinner table last week. We are, we are so enthralled that money will um, satisfy us that there was a poll done on what things people would do to win a million dollars. 42% of people would say they would go to jail if they knew that would guarantee a million dollars. Some of you are thinking, well, maybe. Um, okay. Um, 42% of people would move to a foreign land and never come back for a million dollars. 42% of people, what was a couple of the other ones? Um, what was it? Oh, never see their best friend again for a million dollars. And this was, this was the capper of all. 42% of people would throw their, an, their, their pet animal off a cliff for a for, for million dollars. I'm thinking, well, it's the end of their life. They'd make it quicker, but. <laughs> and I mentioned this to my family, and then I got permission to tell this story, but two of my girls have done martial arts, and as a father, just trying to inspire them in their martial art callings, I've tried to uh, provoke them to have a friendly bout between each other. They've resisted. They will not fight each other. But when I said, would you guys fight for a million dollars? Hold on, I said, before you answer. And the winner has to knock the other person out? They said, absolutely, I would. (laughs) Put their chin out, like. But even if they got that million dollars, that wouldn't get the job done. See, that's his point right there. Like, money can't get it done. It can't satisfy. Money, in the end, can't make you happy, and it can't even protect you. Talking about security. Um, Dr. Hahn, do rich people get exemption from cancer? Okay. Dr. Brian, do rich people uh, never have high blood pressure? Oh, it doesn't work that way, huh? So you can't barricade yourself with all your money from sickness. Do you know that in the Buckingham Palace, which is, it's crazy the elaborate security they have for this place, um, they could stop missiles and everything from getting in that place, but during the height of that one virus that seemed to turn half the world upside down, that virus made its way in that first or second week into Buckingham Palace. See, that's, that's a picture of what money can do, and on top of that, you can't even take it with you, Right? It's kind of a sad illustration of the human heart of what you find the pharaohs would do in all these pyramids in faraway places. You know, when archaeologists go in there and they find all this gold and treasure, I mean, really expensive stuff, and it's surrounding a molten body, like you're doing anything with that money. There is a reason you've never seen a U-Haul attached to a hearse. You can't take it with you. Jesus is not against stuff. What he is against is making a God out of stuff. Martin Luther said, that's just plain stupid. What kind of God is it that can't even protect itself from moth and rust? Not much of a God. 1 Timothy 6.17 puts this all in focus. This gives us some, some, some saneness in this material madness. Paul writes Timothy that you should tell the rich in this present age. And by the way, by the world, that's mostly all of us. The rich in this present age, don't be haughty. Neither should you take hope in in the uncertainty of riches, he says, but rather you should take your hope in God who richly provides everything for us to enjoy. Now here's the deal. 
finding your ultimate security and satisfaction and stuff that is making a God out of stuff is not only stupid, it, is, it causes soul-ravaging anxiety. Now, some of you might hear, right, here, right here might be saying, well, well, stuff isn't my thing. This applies not, to, you, can, you can find treasure not in stuff, but maybe in status, right? You can find your earthly treasure in your appearance. People are slaves to that. You can find your treasure not in status or appearance, but maybe in uh, your career, right? Your degrees, even your marriage, even how your kids are doing or not doing, or your family. Any number of things we can turn into gods and worship at their feet, and because they never produce, ultimately, they only create a worship environment of anxiety. So Jesus is telling us to make a choice here. You can, you can, he'll let you do it. You can lay up treasure on earth, or you can use your earthly blessings, your earthly treasure to lay up treasures in heaven. But know this, know this, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So choose wisely, because whatever you choose to treasure, there where your heart run to every time. So he says, make a choice. I'll be quicker on these other illustrations under point one. Make a choice in terms of your treasure. Number two, make a choice in terms of your focus. Now these verses are very enigmatic. Let me read them again, verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, no shortage of ink, spent on what exactly he's saying in these very puzzling verses. It boils down to this. You saw where it says the eye is the lamp to the body. You saw that, right? In other words, the eye allows you to see what's out there so that your body can move through life appropriately. You've seen people who can't see. They have to tap with a stick or they have a, a dog that helps them or somebody that leads them. Your eye is the lamp in that way. He's saying a good eye then is focused on God, which then allows you to, as it says in 1 John, walk in the light as he is in the light. In context, a bad eye or an evil eye is a light that is focused on some other thing besides God. Stuff, status, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that causes people to walk in increasing darkness. And it's such a subtle thing. Sometimes people, their life is so wrapped around something besides God, they're, they're professing Christians, they never dreamed they would get there because it was a series of taking their eyes off God, mostly in difficulty, but not just that, sometimes in prosperity, and pretty soon they're worshiping something besides the living God. So he says, basically, choose your focus wisely because it will impact what you see and don't see. Then third of all, he says this, no one can serve two masters, for either you hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, what's fascinating about this, the word mammon doesn't literally mean money. It came to be understood that to be that in the Jewish mind. The word literally is thing that is trusted or thing that you have confidence in outside of God. 
we like to hedge our bets perhaps. Well, I, I trust in God. I can give you the gospel, doctrinally word perfect, and even tell you about the attributes of God. But meanwhile, we're actually treasuring, right, and focusing on something more than God. Now, these other gods, they're polytheistic. Money is quite cool with you having other gods on the throne of your heart. Money will say, come on in, status. You can sit there, sit on the throne with me too. Appearance, perception, come on. But God's not polytheistic, is he? He says, that, that is just as foolish as thinking a slave can serve two masters. You can't. You'll hate the one or love the other, relatively speaking. Now, I've tried to run through that to make this point. You and I, as we're, as we're talking about worry and anxiety in life, we have daily choices to make. We must, as we just saw, choose our treasure wisely. Because the treasure you choose is what's going to control your heart. You must choose your focus wisely because who or what you choose to focus on is going to determine what you see in life. You must choose your master wisely because the master you serve, oh, he it is, it it is, is the one that you will serve. Now, I would boil this first point down to this. Imagine you're a human heart right here and imagine a throne on that heart, a throne. You can have on the throne of your heart God or stuff or status, but you can't have both, not according to what Jesus says. So number one, we're called to do what, family? Make a choice. Number two, these choices you make every day will have very real consequences. Look at the first word of verse 25. Therefore. Whenever you see a therefore, you should ask, what is it there for? It is a linking expression that what preceded it is logically connected to what follows. In other words, what Jesus just said about our choices, right, has to do with what he's about to say. He's making a logical connection. What is that logical connection? Six times in these verses, Jesus says, anxious. As I pointed out by way of introduction, three times he says, don't be anxious. And then he has that short little cutting phrase, oh, you have little faith. Here's the logical implication. Here's the connection. What you choose to treasure, to focus on, the God you choose to serve, well, the result will either be anxiety and worry, or it will be faith and rest and trust. And then, then, just to be gracious, he will go on in this paragraph to give us several reasons why God is trustworthy to cast your worries upon, asking a series of questions that demand an answer. Now, we're going to get there in just a moment, but I want to quickly um, sort out the difference between being wise and being worried, right? Because that's like, well, aren't I supposed to be wise and plan ahead, huh? And think about the future? Because sometimes a worry-wracked person and a wise person can do the same action, but from totally different heart places, right? So let me just spend a few minutes on that. When Jesus in this paragraph talks about, hey, listen, the birds, they don't even toil and they eat. 
and the grass doesn't do anything and it's clothed beautifully by lilies and flowers. He is not saying, hey, listen, don't do anything. Go home, lay on your couch, grab your controller, open up your mouth because every 45 seconds, an angelic being is gonna drop into your mouth your favorite flavor of Pringles and every 25 minutes, bring your beverage of choice. He's not saying that, okay? Jesus is not anti-work. We clear about that? 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says, I, wrote, I write you a command that you've heard before that if any person will not work, shall not eat. If you have the capacity to work and you don't, you've got something to say about that. So Jesus is not anti-work. Also, Jesus is not anti-planning. And Jesus is not even anti-thinking ahead. He's not anti-saving up. Remember in Proverbs chapter 6, went to Proverbs uh, last year, I think it was, and he says to the uh, sluggard, hey, why don't you look at the ant? And I want you to be like the ant, because the ant sees the winter coming and saves up and stores up. Sluggard, be like the ant. Just tell him to be wise, plan, work ahead. Or how about the end of that book, he takes this, this, this dear woman who sees winter coming and thus prepares clothing for her family accordingly. She is praised and blessed as a wonderful woman for that anticipation and preparation. In fact, this is crazy. 2 Corinthians 12, 14, Paul tells parents to save up for their kids. I've always kind of had it backwards. Kids, you're, you're my retirement plan, so get some good jobs, right? Well, maybe that can happen, but Paul tells parents to save up for their kids. That's planning. That's preparation. And by the way, that means that you should never be uh, upset about generational wealth or inheritance. They were simply doing what God had called them to do for their kids. What Jesus is anti-planning against is this. He's anti-planning that turns into obsession, that feeds the delusion that possessions can satisfy me and secure me. Real good, thanks. Be clear on this. Being carefree is not the same as being careless. There's a big difference. And, and I would also add to this. Jesus is not saying, hey, listen, if you cast your cares on me, you will never have a trial. Life is going to be so smooth. The birds that he feeds do fall to the ground, right? The, clothes, the, the grass that he clothes does get burned up, and you and I are going to die. Thankfully, this text points to our ultimate provision. But let's, let, let's, let's wait, hit these uh, verses real quick. Just, just, I think there's power in just hitting them real quick so you get the point of what Jesus was doing in this live preaching. Command number one, verse 25. Y'all with me? Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. That's a command. That's an imperative. It's not a suggestion. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And what's the answer that's called for? Is life more than food and the body more than clothing? Yes or no? Yes, of course it is. There is more to life than stuff. We're not animals after all. Well, speaking of animals, verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And this is an argument, I can't remember the Greek or the Latin expression, from lesser to greater. 
If he cares for the birds of the air lesser, won't he care for you greater? Will, will he? Yeah, I might be bird brain, but I'm more valuable than a bird. I'm a Mago Day, and so are you. Then verse 27. Ooh, let's let this land. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? As I said a few minutes ago, anyone ever going through a worry and thinking, you know, if I just obsessively worry and chase my tail for another 36 hours, I think this will clear up. No. It just makes it worse, right? In fact, it spirals you down and down. You can't add anything to your life by worrying, but you can't take away from it. And then another argument from lesser to greater, this time from the inanimate creation. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into heaven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And the answer again, it's a lesser to greater. If he takes care of the grass of the field, gives them clothes, he will take care of you. And then you have this second command not to be anxious. Verse 31, therefore do not be anxious saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Now this, this is one of the strongest points that he's making against us. The reason, another reason you should not worry and be filled with anxiety is because it causes you to reflect the same atheistic godless viewpoint of the world makes you just like them and that is point right there like you're just like the pagans see they don't have god in the picture right and if you don't have god in the picture where do you find your identity in life may not be food or clothing this really hits them in the first world society but or third world but if you don't have god where do you find your meaning in life where do you find your meaning just Say it. Anywhere and everywhere else, right? Some people, stuff. The pagans go after stuff, and all godless people means is people without God. That's what they build their life on. And when you are in that worry, anxious cycle, you have an atheistic, godless viewpoint. And let's just play it out. Let's, let's, let's go with riches. Let's say you do really well, and you just kill it wealth-wise. Again, Egyptian pharaohs, molten body next to all those riches don't mean nothing in eternity, right? And let's say it doesn't go so good. Let's go back to the Great Depression when rich people, some of them jumped off buildings. They were so despairing because their portfolios plummeted. It may not work out for you, and in this life, you'll just be depressed and go down, down, down. But either way, when you put your hope in stuff like that, you're just going to go down, just like the world. Jesus says, you don't have to be like that because look at that expression, you have a heavenly father who knows all your needs. He knows, he knows. I said last week, this one guy wrote on the flyleaf of his Bible, I am God's personal concern. You should write that on the flyleaf of your Bible. I am God's personal concern. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, God's got you. He really does. He's got you. Well, how can Jesus say that? What gives him the right to say that? Well, that's a good question. Jesus can say that because he took care of your greatest worry. 
Something you really should worry about outside of Christ. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus taught, do not fear him who can destroy your body, but cannot destroy your soul. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Who's that? Who's that? That's the Father, a holy God and a fallen, sinful, unredeemed sinner. That's bad news. That's really bad news. But Jesus came into the world to bear our judgment. He took care of our ultimate worry. Does that even mean anything to us? Does that even mean anything to me? Does that even mean anything to you? We just looked at an argument from lesser to greater, birds to us, grass to us. But listen to Romans 8. Romans 8 is this wonderful, glorious, faith-producing teaching of greater to lesser. Listen to it. Paul says that we know that all things work together for good. Does it say all things are good? No, it doesn't say that. It says all things do what? Work together for good for those who love God. Do you love God? For those who are called to according to his purpose. Well, what is his purpose then? For those whom he foreknew, he did also predestinate to be whittled down, conformed, shaped into the image of his son. Let me ask you this. Are your worries and your response to it making you look more like Jesus or drawing you back from Jesus? And for all of us, it can draw us back, but the question is, will you you allow that to conform you to the image of Christ? He goes on to say, if that's you, there's some unshakable anchors to get this done. For those whom he did predestinate, he also called. That means when you came to Christ, he called you. Maybe he's calling someone to faith in Christ this morning. And those whom he called, he also justified. That means he declared innocent, righteous, based on Christ. And those he justified, he also glorified. That's in the aorist tense. You're like, big deal. That's a past tense, meaning in God's mind, your glorification, if you are really in Christ, is so sure, he can talk about it as is in past tense, like it's already done. And then you have this. What then shall we say to these things? Here's the greater the lesser. He fires off six questions. Six questions. What then shall we say to this? If God can be, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who? Who can be against you? Who? If God is for you, who can be against you? Nobody. Nobody. He doesn't even answer that because it's so obvious. Second question. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give you all things? Answer? Oh, he will according to his mercy and our need. Third question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And he answers it this way. It don't matter who brings the charge because it is God who justifies. He's already declared you righteous. Then you have this fourth question. Who is the one who will condemn you? And then he goes, here's his answer. Well, nobody can because Christ was crucified, even now was raised, is interceding at the right hand of the Father for you. So, yeah, nobody can condemn you because the one who took your condemnation is alive. And then this final question. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He mentions a whole bunch of stuff, right? And he does say, yeah, as it's written, we are being killed all the day long. 
We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Life is gonna be really hard sometimes. But he goes on to say, even in spite of that, no! We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate you, my friend, my brother and sister, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the consequences you have when Jesus is your treasure, when Jesus is your focus, when Jesus is your master. Now, he wraps it up by making this choice crystal clear. You've heard a lot, and you're like, whoa, this has just been a lot. Dial in, dial in on this. Here's a question. Are you racked with anxiety? Do you flirt with it? Does it dominate you? Here's where you got to start. There's a general thing you've gotta, you got to focus on, and then a specific. And it goes like this. Who will I worship today? And what will I do as worries come up in my heart? Who will I worship today, and what will I do as worries come up? Now, where's worship from? Verse 33, as I read it, I said, that is the money verse. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. What does it mean to seek first? Well, let's go back to the language that he had earlier part of this narrative. To seek is to treasure, right? To seek is to focus on God. To seek is to choose him to be our master. And the word, to seek the kingdom of God is to worship the king. And there has to be this transition that happens. It's, it's got to happen. People who typically are racked with anxiety, who are racked with worry, spend far more time worshiping, that is ascribing worth to the feet of the things they worry about, than to the one who on the cross dealt with the thing that we should worry about most and we don't have to anymore. You might think this is a feeling thing. I just want to get this feeling. I want to feel my way into freedom from anxiety. It's not a feeling thing. It will impact your feelings, but it's not first a feeling thing. It is a worshiping thing. It is a, it's a mind thing. Martin Lloyd-Jones has this great book, you ought to read it sometime, called Spiritual Depression. And he says again and again in all the sermons, half our problem in life is listening to our feelings and letting them dominate us rather than talking back to them. It's so good, so good. You gotta think about that. Our problem is that our feelings come to dominate us and we fall at our feet and we worship them. No, you don't, you don't think your you, rather you don't feel your way. You don't say, you know, I'm gonna listen to 47 stanzas of this song and that'll do it. It might for a second, but when you go back, if your mind hasn't been renewed, that's all it is. It has a role, but that's not the deal. Jesus said in our text, he used cognitive terms. And I want you to miss this. What did he say that you should do with the birds of the air? What should you do? What does the text say? Look, consider, right? He says, look at the grass, consider the grass, consider the lilies. He is talking to our minds, isn't he? Talking about our thinking. Seek is first a thinking thing. 
Colossians 3.1, if you have been raised with Christ, he says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, he says, on things above, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you don't, listen, if you don't greedily, obsessively, oh, please get this, if you... If you're not greedy about the means of grace, the word of God, greedy about it. Prayer, greedy about it. Gathering with the church, greedy about it. Diving into ministry rhythms and opportunities, greedy about it. You will still be dominated by your fallen emotions instead of being Romans 12 2, being renewed by the transforming of your mind. Remember that verse, Romans 12, how does that go? You don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, what is it? Your mind, your mind. Every day, we must reset reset the compass of our soul back on Christ. When there is a power outage, what happens to your clocks when you wake up in the morning? They're blinking, they're all over the place, right? You gotta reset your clock. We live in a fallen world. You gotta reset the compass of your worship towards Jesus Christ every single day. It's a life of worship, being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We must turn our eyes upon Jesus. We must look to the hillside where mercy and justice embrace, where the Son of God gave his life that our measureless sin was erased. That's what we gotta do. Now, I'm going to close it right here. I memorize Scripture, quite a bit of it, not because I'm smart. I'm, I'm not, no false, it takes me a lot of work. It takes me a lot of work. And not just because I want to be able to quote it during a sermon. I think there is power in quoting God's Word. But for my own personal walk. So when's the last time you memorized some Scripture and you used it the harpoon, that nasty anxiety when it comes at you. See, most people say, well, I tried that. Listen, (laughs) most people give God's way 0.01% effort compared to pursuing infinitely more other efforts to deal with their anxiety and worry. I, I really believe that. I'm not saying that there's not other parts of a response to that sometimes. But I'm saying it is, it is a matter of fact. Most people spend about 0.1% of effort in what God has to say about this compared to other efforts they make. And here, here's something very, don't, don't say, oh, this is so simple. Because the living God is not simple. The living God has power. He's the one that created everything by the word of his power. And I just believe, I really believe this. Oh, let, let me just, let me, let, let me close. Worship, a posture of worship, and I think if you're in a posture of worship, then as the worries hit your dashboard, you're already moving in the Lord's direction, you can much easily dispense with those worries, deal with those worries, wrestle with those worries. Now look at verse 34. It's the last verse. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. I think the Lord's using a little sarcasm here. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I think the Lord's saying, listen, if you really want to worry, don't even worry about tomorrow. Today will give you enough things to worry about, right? And that's true. That is exactly true. 
Here's the funny thing about the future. It's always coming at you 60 seconds a minute. And it doesn't stop coming. Saying, if you want to worry, there's plenty of material today, baby. So what are you going to do with your worries when they come? (laughs) There are things that are perfectly normal to worry about. Your spouse has a cancer diagnosis. Yeah, I think that's something you're going to worry about. A wayward child or something to worry about. A a brother that's gone off the deep, worry. You know, daughter that's driving through an ice storm home from Lansing, worried. Like, that's that's stuff. But here's the question. Of course, there's going to be times when worry surges through our souls. But the question is, what am I going to do with my worries? All right? And if you... If you're really worshiping the king, I think you'll be able to deal with the worries. And here's two verses I want to invite you to memorize, and then, and then I'm done. Not memorize right now. You could if you have a real sharp mind. But it, it just, it's, this is what God has to say. There's two passages maybe you could start with in this. 1 Peter 1.7 says, keep on casting your cares. That's in, in the Greek. Keep on casting your anxieties on the Lord for he cares for you, because he, we just read that a while ago. So you, what you got to do is say, Lord, I'm, I'm really having a hard time with this. And it's okay in that way to feel worry. But then do you give those worries to God? And say, you got, you got this, because you know what worry is? Worry is trying to shoulder on your own shoulders that which only the Lord has brought off shoulders to shoulder. That's what it is. Lord, I have to give this to you. You, you got to take it from me. Cast your cares on the Lord, for he cares for you. And then Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Some of you could quote that right now. What does it say? Don't be anxious in anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In other words, when those anxieties come, you thank the Lord that he's big enough to handle them, and you even thank him for the opportunity to grow, right? Those are growth. You can put on some spiritual muscle then, right, by looking to him. You thank him. And sometimes, frankly, it'll be one and done, and he just takes that burden away. And other times, you may wrestle for days. And that's okay, but are you wrestling, right? Are you again and again giving it to the Lord? So the question is, who will I worship today? And what will I do when worries come up? There's a choice you got to make. Who's your treasure? Who's your focus? Who's your master? There are going to be consequences from that long-term approach. Anxiety or trust. So make that choice to worship him holistically every day and then specifically to cast your worries on him for he cares for you. I close with a quote from Gretchen Suffles. I do not have time to tell her tell you about her struggle with worry, but this is what she said. Being a Christian does not mean you receive an automatic get out of fear, get out of trouble, get out of suffering, get out of worry card. That's what people think. I tried that and it's still there. No, that's not what he said. What he did say is you have the means to have, to, to all, what it means is that you have all you need to respond with faith and hope and trust to all of life's nasty sometimes and sometimes unexpected twists and turns. So fight anxiety and fuel faith by treasuring God. Father, I ask that 
you would take this, this message and just uh, this truth, this text, uh, these promises to work into hearts. Lord, forgive us where we so easily blow off what you have to say about this. We think we're so much smarter than you sometimes. Lord, thank you that there is power in your promises. Thank you that you're so real that what we've placed on the throne of our heart will be a God who increasingly gives us rest in the midst of distress or a God, small g God, that increasingly gives us anxiety. Lord, please work in hearts through this, and I pray in Christ's name, amen.